Thank you, Kenan. Good morning, Harvest Church. How's everybody doing today? Good, good. Uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to get to preach the Word of God to you this morning. And uh, I also really appreciate, since this is my first time up here, that Kenan didn't ask me to ask all of you for a bunch of money. <laughs> that was uh, really great that he didn't ask me to do that. Normally, whoever's preaching does the announcements. He says, I'll handle that one. So uh, we, got, we got good leadership in this church, and I'm thankful for it. Um, all jokes aside, my name is Wes Selectman, and my family and I, we moved here this summer, uh, July, August, and we just wanted to be a part, God called us to come be a part of what He's doing in and through the Memphis area and, and in and through Harvest Church. And we're excited to be here. And as he said, I'm the pastor of Discipleship Communities. And if you're not engaged in one of those, then I would, I would love to help you with that. You can send me an email at wes at harvestmemphis.org. So my wife, Candace, she was in the first service with my kids. We've been married 12 years together for 17 and she is an incredible, incredible lady, and, and I, I just she's a gift from the Lord, and uh, we are just partners in life, and, and she supports me being in ministry. It's not what I've always done, and so she supported a transition into ministry, which is uh, very kind of her, and so she's just an incredible gal, and, and I'm just thankful to be married to her, and I, I can't honor her enough here this morning. Now, we have two children, Ava and Luke, and they are incredible little sinners, uh, they're good kids. They're good kids. We love them. Uh, we are, they're seven and five. So we are in the process. If you're parents or you've been a parent, you know what it's like to be stewarding your kids towards the cross of Jesus Christ. And uh, we're struggling well is what I like to tell people. So, uh, but we've got a, a, an awesome text this morning and it's 24 verses. So if you're a visitor here, we're going through the gospel of John and we're going to be in John chapter five. So you can start turning there verses 1 through 24, but it's a long passage, uh, so let's just dive right on into the Word. Uh, oh, by the way, let me just say thank you to all of you, uh, because we have been graciously embraced by this church since we've been new. We're new to Memphis, we're new to the area, and so many of you have just opened your arms with gratitude and grace and prayed for us and helped us, and so just thank you. Keep up the good work as more people come into this church, love them well like you did us. Um, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he said to them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. And the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. 
And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. This is the word of God for the people of God, and all God's people said, praise be to God. You may be seated. Father, we are so thankful to gather here this morning, uh, for, thankful for the opportunity to dive into your holy word this morning. Let us see with our hearts and minds how glorious you are and how glorious your Son is. Uh, may the Holy Spirit guide us, uh, may we be transformed by your word, and may I decrease that you might increase in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. All right, so the Gospel of John is broken down into two kind of main sections, and we're in the first section, which is chapters 1 through 12. This is commonly known as the book of signs. So in these 12 chapters, Jesus is going to perform seven signs or miracles or wonders. And he does this in order to show people that he is the Son of God, uh, to bring life and to claim that, you know, show that he is the long-awaited Messiah. And we've already looked at two of these signs, uh, turning water into wine and the healing of the official son. And today, we're going to look at the third sign where he heals a lame man. Now, also in this section, from about chapter 5 to chapter 10, we're going to see a a few things also come into play. One of those is Jesus is going to begin to interact with the Jewish authorities and his disciples in the middle of Jewish festivals. So the calendar was full of various Jewish festivals and things like the Passover, the Tabernacle, Feast of Dedication, Sabbath, uh, and, and all the men of Jerusalem, or, or of uh, the Jewish faith, rather, were supposed to gather. And so we're going to see Jesus interacting with everyone in the middle of these festivals, okay? The second thing that we see in these chapters is Jesus, once and for all, begins to definitively crank up the volume and turn up the heat to declare that he is the Son of God. He's going he's to tell us just plain as day, and he's going to show us by these signs. And so that is really getting turned up here. The third thing that's going on is instead of responding in awe and worship and wonder, instead of responding with belief in Christ, these Jewish authorities are going to begin to crank up the heat with a plot to kill Jesus. Instead of believing him, they're now going to go from we want to persecute you to we want to kill you, and they're going to carry that forward all the way through the end of the gospel. So that's what's going on here. And all of these things are written, as our theme verse states, John 20, verse 30 through 31, so that we might believe that Jesus is the Son of God and by believing have life in his name. So all these stories are written. So this story, verses 1 through 24, 
Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath in the middle of a festival in order to call out the unbelief and the false religion of the Pharisees and the Jewish authorities and to call us to believe that he is the Son of God, that he is equal to God and, we can, and to have life in his name. So I'll say that again. He's going to heal a, a man on the Sabbath at a festival to call out their unbelief and their false religion and for once and for all to declare that he is equal to God and he is the Son of God and we can have life in his name if we believe. Okay? It's pretty clear, right? All right, so let's, uh, let's summarize this story because there's a lot of moving parts going on here. So Jesus comes to Jerusalem for this feast, and he goes to the Pool of Bethesda. Now, the Pool of Bethesda is a, a series of two pools. They're outside the city walls of Jerusalem, kind of on the north end of the city near this thing called the Sheep Gate. These pools are spring-fed, so water comes up out of the earth, and it collects in these two reservoirs, and it's surrounded by some covered walkways and then divided in the middle. So that's what the, the colonnades were. And it was believed that these pools had healing powers. All right, they're called the House of Mercy or the House of Outpourings. That's what Bethesda means, House of Mercy. And so it says in verse 3 that a multitude of invalids gathered there. Blind, lame, paralyzed. So what they're doing is they're gathering in hope that they could be healed. They're hanging out at this pool in hopes that they would catch the waters being stirred up. And they thought that that was the angels stirring up the water. And if you were the first person into the pool after it got stirred up, you could be healed. I don't think that was probably happening, but that's what they thought, okay? When the water stirred up, if you can be the first person in there, you're going to be healed. And so they were gathered there with the hope of being healed. Jesus comes to the pools, and he finds this man who's been paralyzed for 38 years. 38 years he's probably been coming to this pool on a regular basis with the hope of being healed. And he asks him a simple question. Do you want to be healed? Now, Jesus knows the answer. He knows what's going on. He's got divine providence. He knows this man wants to heal. And also, this man is here. He's at the pool, right? You would think that he definitely wants to be healed. But listen to his answer. I think he's been in this condition so long. I think he's been in this state for so long that I don't think he has much hope. He doesn't know where else to go, but I don't think he has much hope. Because he says, when the waters get stirred up, there is no one to help me, and I can't get there myself on my own. What a sad state. No one will help me. I've been this way for 38 years, and I can't make it to there to be the first one. So what are you going to do about it, Jesus? Like he doesn't even have any hope in Jesus who's standing there. But what does Jesus do? without an inkling of faith from this guy, and that's important, without inkling of faith from this guy, by his word, by Jesus' very command, he says, get up, take up your mat, and walk. And it says, immediately, the man was healed. Now, that's the scene. That's the setting. So from here on out, we're going to look at some responses. We're going to look how the man responded. We're going to look at how the Jewish authorities responded and how Jesus responds to them. Let's pick it up in verse 10. It says, So the Jews said to the man who'd been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. 
Now, they had added a bunch of rules to the Sabbath law, and they declared it unlawful for you to carry something, okay? So that was what they're accusing him of here. But he answered them, look, uh, the man who healed me, he kind of punted the blame. He blame shifted similarly to the way Adam and Eve did in the garden, similarly to the way that my kids do all the time. It wasn't me. That's what he says. It wasn't me. It was the man who healed me. He told me to do it. And they said, well, who is this man? And I said, well, I don't know. Uh, I, I was kind of caught up in the fact that I could walk, and he slipped away in the crowd. I didn't catch his name. So then later, this man is walking, in the temple, he's walking. Hadn't done that in 38 years, so he's walking in the temple, and Jesus finds him and says, see your well. He reminds him of the power of the word that just healed him. He reminds him that, look, no one would help you, but I stepped in and I helped you. See your well. And then he says, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, we need to talk about that verse for just a second. Sin no more. It is believed, uh, or I believe, personally believe, that this man, his physical condition was a result of past personal sin. Now, we know this is a possibility from Deuteronomy chapter 28. Back in Deuteronomy, when, uh, the, before the people are fixing to enter in the promised land, God says to them, listen, if you obey me, I'm going to bless you. But if you disobey, I'm going to curse you. And one of those curses was that you could be struck with wasting disease. Physical ailments, literally, it says that you cannot be healed from, that you would have to endure for a long time. Boils on your legs and wasting disease. That was one of the curses, okay? I personally think that's what has happened to this man. The other reason why I say that is because this story is meant to seem over and against John chapter 9, which we're going to look at in a minute when Jesus heals a blind man. Okay, Remember, the invalids were blind, lame, and paralyzed. He's going to heal the blind man, and the disciples are going to ask him, hey, who sinned, this man or his parents? And he says, no, no, no. It's not whether or not this man sinned or not. I'm doing this. I'm healing him so that you may know I'm the Son of God. So I think this man's physical condition was a result of his past personal sin. But that's not even what's most important about Jesus' statement. He says that nothing, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. What could be worse than being paralyzed for 38 years? I mean, it's, it's kind of something to think about. He's calling them, so he's just healed this man. He's just physically healed him and shown him his power. He's calling him to repent, to sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The something worse is that if this man refuses to believe Jesus, to trust his life in his hand, even after he's felt the healing power, is that he is going to spend an eternity separated from God in hell. That's worse than being paralyzed for 38 years. So what is this guy's response? How did he respond? He's been healed. He's running around. He's been accused by the, the Pharisees of breaking the law. And then Jesus finds him and says, you're still well, sin no more, repent, follow me, that nothing worse may happen to you. You know what he does? In one of the worst cases of ingratitude and just obstinate rebellion, he sells, he turns his back on Jesus and sells him out to the Pharisees. 
He goes to them. He probably runs to them on these legs and says, it was Jesus who healed me. He's more afraid of them. He's more afraid of their authority over him, which we're going to look at in a minute, and more afraid of, of, of uh, what's going on in, in, in that day, the spiritual turmoil, than he is of his own sinful condition. And he turns his back on Jesus despite feeling the power, the healing power of Christ. That's important. We're going to look at that in a minute. So his response is to rebel. Now let's look at what the Jewish authorities responded, how they responded. They were offended. Two things offended them in this passage. All right, it says one in in verses 16 there. It says that this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So I did a little research on the Sabbath, way more than I needed to. It was like an hour's worth of material, so I had to reduce it down. So here it is. The Sabbath was a gift given to the nation of Israel from God. God gave it to them as a gift. It's one of the four, or it's one of the Ten Commandments. It's commandment number four. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. You work six days, but on the seventh day, you don't work. Why don't you want us to work on the seventh day? Well, in Exodus 20, the reason he gives is that God created everything in six days, and he rested on the seventh day. He says, so since I'm your creator, I'm giving you the gift of rest. Now, we know God didn't fully rest on that seventh day. He rested from his creative work. He didn't rest from his providential work. He was still holding the universe together. Okay, but he's telling us we don't have to rest because he is our creator. He's the one who gives us the very life in our blood, in our lungs, okay? In Deuteronomy 5, when the Ten Commandments are given again, the fourth commandment says, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Six days you shall work, but the seventh day you don't work. And not only that, I don't want you to work. I don't want your family to work. I don't want your slaves and your servants to work. I don't want your livestock to work. And if there's any foreigners in the land, I don't want them to work either. Why? Because I freed you from a life of slavery. Go look at it in the text. He goes, I redeemed you from a life of slavery in Egypt, where for 400 years you were forced to work seven days a week. This is a gift of mercy. Like the pool of Bethesda, house of mercy. This is a gift of mercy. And I don't want you to work on that because I want you to remember, number one, I'm your creator. And number two, I'm your redeemer. And I don't want anyone else to work who's in your midst because I want you to show them the same mercy I'm showing you. I want you to point them to Jesus so no one works. So the Sabbath was a gift from God. It was a good thing. But what happened was the Pharisees and the religious leaders at some point in the centuries leading up to the appearance of Christ, they began to ponder, well, what is work? If we're not supposed to work, what is work? And instead of just relying on the Lord uh, and the Holy Spirit to kind of communicate that to them, what they did is they added 39 additional rules and laws to God's word. And one of those laws said, you can't carry anything on the Sabbath unless it was an emergency. Can't carry anything. It's why the disciples were, uh, when they were harvesting the wheat in the field, they got accused for that and and so many things. But you can't carry anything unless it's an emergency. That's a ridiculous rule, I think. But they added these rules, and now they're saying, Jesus, you have caused this man to sin, and you're, you're breaking the law too. 
You've caused him to break the law and you're breaking the law. So that's why they wanted to persecute Jesus. That was offense number one. But offense number two was far greater. Offense number two was when he stepped in and said, my father is working. My father is working. He was making himself, as it says in verse 18, equal with God. When the Pharisees added all these laws, they were declaring that their words and their authority were equal to God. They were claiming that these additional laws that they had added to God's word had equal authority. And Jesus steps in and says, no, my father is working now. I have authority. I'm equal with him. Now, folks, one of the great challenges of the church, we've been going through in the second service here, in this service, a class upstairs called church, or, uh, Martyrs and the Movement of the Church. We've been looking at martyrs over the history uh, since, since Christ uh, died uh, and, and how the church has moved. And there's been one thing over and over that's a common theme Churches have split and fought and faiths have broken away all over adding or taking away from God's word. It's happening even today and it's happened throughout history. And one of our great challenges in a, in a time when there's spiritual turmoil, when you can be offended about anything, okay, we have got to stay the course with God's word. We can never add anything to it and we have to preach the whole word. Amen? And I'm thankful to be a part of a church that takes expositional preaching seriously and gospel centrality and making disciples and all these values. Like, I'm, I'm glad to be a part of the church that takes that seriously, that we do not want to defer from what is central, and that is God's word. We don't want to add to it, and we don't want to take away from it. We want to preach the whole Word, and I'm thankful to be a part of a church that does that. But we have to remember and pray that we always stay the course. Because if we don't, and if anyone doesn't, any time you add to God's word, you're stepping into false religion and heresy. And false religion and false doctrine will always lead, as it did right here, to persecuting Jesus. When you begin to add or take away from God's word. So that's one challenge that we have here. So the Jewish authorities, the man responded in rebellion, and the Jewish authorities responded by being offended by Jesus. Does that sound familiar today? Like we're, people are offended by Jesus all the time. It doesn't mean it's not true. Sometimes it's the Christians that are offensive. That's a topic of another discussion, tactics on being loving. But um, anyway, let's look at how Jesus responded to this entire situation. Number one, we've already seen that he declares, my father, I am equal. Every other Jewish man in that day would have said, our father, but he's saying, my father. And that's what set him off to kill him. But let's pick the story up in verse 19. And we're going to look at four things that Jesus says make him equal with God. You can, if you're taking notes, you can write these down. Four things that Jesus says make him equal with God. And by declaring these, he's also as we said in our kind of thesis statement, he's also showing their unbelief and how they aren't equal with God by saying these things. And we'll point that out to you. So four things Jesus says. Verse 19. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, 
that the Son does likewise. Jesus is saying right here, hey, I'm equal with God because I'm not independent from God. We are one. I'm not independent with God. Rather, I have perfect identity in both will and action with the Lord. He's talking about actions here. Whatever the Father does, the Son does. Okay, so I am equal with God because I'm not independent from God. I have perfect identity with His will and action. On the reverse side, He said to them that you are following your own way. You don't have perfect identity and will and action with the Lord. Instead, you are following after yourselves. You are more attracted to your will and your actions than working with God and His actions. May that never be you and me, all right? Number two, verse 20. It says, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. The fa- Jesus is saying that I'm equal to God because I have a unique, loving relationship with the Father. Now, I looked this up because I wanted to make sure that, that I was tracking here with what I think the Holy Spirit, what God's saying in His Word. And so I looked up, there's two words for, for love in Greek, and so I looked up which one this was. This is the Greek word phileo. Now, and this is the relationship between the Son and God. Now, back in John 3, 16, everyone's, you know, like the, the most famous verse in the world, God so loved the world, us. That's describing His relationship for us. That word is agape. Now, the word agape means it hints to a personal will and affection. So he has a personal will to love us and affection towards us. And as John 3.16 says, that he gave us his son. He wants to love us through his son. But here in phileo, he is declaring, Jesus is saying, look, the father and I are equal because he has a unique love for me because phileo expresses deep personal affection and a mutual interest. What interests God interests Jesus and vice versa. He's saying, I'm equal to God because the Father loves me in a unique way, not the same way he loves the rest of the world. He does love us. We're not minimizing his love for us. We're elevating the love of the Father and the Son, okay? And in response to that, he's telling these Jewish authorities, not only do you not have this unique love, but you really just love yourselves, That's the kind of love you're promoting is the love for yourself and your rules and your laws. So number one is there, Jesus is equal because he's uh, uh, he's, he's not independent of God. And number two is they have a unique love. Number three, which carries off the back end of verse 20, is Jesus is equal because of the works that God has given him to do. He's equal in his works. It says that, in verse 21, for the, uh, as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Now, raising the dead and giving life, those are things that only God can do. And Jesus is saying, there are some greater works to come. And I've just performed this miracle that you're so upset about. I, I, I helped a guy walk, I healed him, but there are greater works coming. I'm going to raise people from the dead, like Lazarus. Oh, and by the way, I'm going to be giving spiritual life everywhere I go and giving the opportunity for redemption. But eventually, I'm going to be killed. God's going to raise me from the dead. 
And ultimately, in that act, I'm going to be able to give life to the entire world. He's saying, these works make me equal with God because only God can do that. But Jesus, hear me out, so many religions and so many people think that Jesus was just kind of a good man. He was just sort of a prophet. He was an instrument that God used. But right here, he says, I'm no mere instrument. I am the Son of God. I am equal to God the Father. Amen? On the reverse end of that, Jesus' works bring out of death and into life. All the Pharisees' works brought death into life. They had dead works. They were whitewashed tombs, as Jesus called them earlier. May that never be a mark of this church. May that never be a mark of who we are as followers of Jesus, that our actions and our works are not life-giving. They were not spreading joy and excitement. We're entering into this Advent season, this, that, that joy that Kenan talked about. Like, may that mark our lives and that we are not, that, that, that followers of Jesus are not marked by dead works like these Pharisees were. The fourth way that Jesus is equal, he says, is in verse 22 and 23. He says, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Jesus is equal with God because God has actually delegated one of his responsibilities to Jesus, the, 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 the responsibility of judgment. One day we're all going to stand before Jesus. His primary purpose in coming to earth is salvation, but that salvation, that time, this church age that we're in right now, it's going to end. And one day we're all going to stand, not before God, but before Jesus, who's given the authority to judgment. And at that moment, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. But also in that moment, if you've not believed, if you've not received this healing power that Jesus offers us, the healing power of salvation, you're going to face the judgment and something worse is going to happen. We're going to be cast into hellfire and brimstone for eternity and be separated from God. But Jesus is the one who is going to be the judge in that moment. Now, by declaring that their word carried equal authority and weight with God's word, they're declaring, no, 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 we're the spiritual judges. We're the spiritual elite. We say what goes. We say when you're violating God's word and when you're not, making themselves the judge and the jury instead of relying on God. And they're going to carry that pride. They're going to carry that arrogance. And they're going to carry that false religion all the way to the cross where they continue to pronounce judgment on the Son of God. And one day they're going to stand before him and be like, well, we got that wrong. You know, and, and they, they missed it. So that's how Jesus responds. We have a lame man who got healed and responded in rebellion. We have the spiritual elite who were offended because Jesus was going against their false religion. He was exposing their unbelief and their false doctrines, their man-made oral traditions. And then he responds with, look, I'm equal to God. 
I can give you life. My works aren't dead. I am the judge and I'm offering you salvation. Listen to what he says in verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word, just as the lame man heard his word, just as he spoke it to him and immediately he was healed, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Folks, God's word, Jesus' very words are the words that heal. And you can receive salvation immediately. And you can pass from death to life. That is amazing. So how do we respond to this text? How do we respond? There may be some of you in here this morning who you don't really know where else to go, but you are here. Maybe you got drugged here. Maybe not drugged, but your friends brought you here. Um, Maybe you got brought here and you don't really have a whole lot of hope. You're like this blind man. You've been in a condition for a long time and you don't really have any hope. God's word is offering you hope today. And if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, you can receive immediately life in his name, eternal life. You can pass the judgment that's coming. But more importantly, you can receive life living water. They wanted the waters to be stirred up. Well, let me just tell you, when Jesus gets into your life, it stirs you up with living water. Amen? Anybody been stirred up by Jesus recently? It feels great. That's one response. If you have not given your life to Christ as your Savior, I implore you to do that this morning. We're going to take communion in a little bit. I'm going to be right down front. I would love to talk to you about your salvation and gospel. And anyone else who's on the team or at one of the back tables would love to discuss it with you too. So that's response number one. If you've never believed in Jesus, I'm asking you to do that this morning. Response number two though, what about us who have believed? What about those of us who have felt the healing power of Jesus and are now walking around saved? just like this guy was, the lame man. But are we still walking in rebellion? See, he left out of there, and when he turned his back on Jesus, Jesus didn't snap his fingers, and there he went to the ground again. He didn't remove the healing power. He let him go and walk. When we get saved, we're always saved. But if you're like me, I spent eight years just walking in rebellion against Jesus. I wasn't renouncing Christ. I never was taking the Lord's name in vain. I was, you know, I I would claim to be a Christian, but I wasn't living free from the power of sin. I was still a slave. I didn't accept the gift for what it was from my creator and my redeemer and live in my new identity. I just continued to walk in my own ways and love myself. Maybe that describes some of you today. 
uh, and maybe you're better today than you were three years ago or whatever, but we're all on a journey. We all have sin, perpetual sin and habitual sin in our lives. And so our response as we begin to take communion, if that describes you, is to reflect, to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal in your heart where you're rebelling, still rebelling against God, despite having the power of the Holy Spirit live in your life and to be free from the power of sin. Maybe it's bitterness. Maybe it's unthankfulness. Maybe it's discontentment. Maybe you've got your identity wrapped up in something else. Maybe it's pornography or drugs or alcohol or whatever. Bring that to the altar. Surrender that to the Lord and stop walking in rebellion. It's victorious. If anyone here knows what I'm talking about, when you've been able to repent from habitual sin, it feels fantastic. But let me tell you what feels better than that. And this is another response that those of us who are believers need to consider. The better response, what's even more victorious, is when you now begin to walk in freedom and follow Jesus. This man ran from Jesus. The Pharisees turned their back on Jesus. Jesus is calling us not to just believe, but to follow him. One of the saddest portions of this story is when the man says, I have no one to help me. I have no one to help me. Where was his small group? Where were the other believers? Where were the folks who knew the truth, who had been healed by the power, who by God's grace and mercy have repented from sin, but are never engaging in the mission of bringing the life and light of Jesus Christ to a dark and fallen world. I've had greater joy preparing for this sermon this week than any joy I've ever had by repenting for my sin. Because I know that God is using me as an instrument, that I'm beginning to partner with God on his mission to bring glory to his name, to elevate his kingdom, and to shine light to people who are sick, who need, I'm not saying you're sick, but just the world, okay? Like, the, the world is sick. There's greater joy when you begin to step into this new identity and you begin to walk in freedom, and you begin to partner with God to share the gospel and to make disciples and to step into the mess that we have here going on and to bring the light of Jesus. If you've not yet made a commitment in your life to begin following Christ in that way, then I ask that you come and you can talk to me or anyone on the ministry staff and repent. And as you reflect, when we get ready to do communion, and you worship your creator and your redeemer who has saved you and is not going to take that salvation away from you, as you reflect, ask the Holy Spirit, Lord, where am I weak in my faith? Where am I missing it? How can I experience this joy of now following you? And that's our response this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we sure do love you. Um, we love you because you're our creator and our redeemer. We love you because 
You've given us the one who fulfills the Sabbath. You've given us the one that is the greatest gift, your son, Jesus. And he came and he died for us because you loved us. And now we can be free if we believe and we confess that he is the Lord, that he is equal with God. We can, be, we can receive salvation, freement from the penalty and the power of sin so we can escape the judgment one day. But not just escape judgment, but live with you forever. And we thank you for that. We thank you for your holy word. Let us not turn from the left or the right from it. But Lord, challenge us. Confront us in our sin. Confront us where we're weak in our faith. Confront us where we fail to partner with you and where we miss the opportunities to help someone into the living waters. We love you with all of our hearts, and it's Jesus' name we pray. Amen.